Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back, and we have Dr. Ernst Muller, the Head of Pediatric Surgery at Steve Beaker Academic Hospital with us today again. And we're going to be talking about causes of bowel obstruction after the neonatal period. Welcome, Dr. Muller. Thanks, Martin. What are some of the common causes of bowel obstruction in this age group? So uh, we speak now about the postnatal bowel obstruction. That means after the first months of age. And here we have uh, most commonly hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, which starts occurring at around the first months of life. Then intussusceptions are very, very common. Uh, but we should also not forget postoperative adhesions. So a child, and often the parents forget about that, they have a child with necrotizing enterocolitis. Child comes back after some years and they completely forgot that this child had an operation for necrotizing enterocolitis or other anomalies in the neonatal period. And then also you should always look at uh, for uh, strangulated or incarcerated inguinal and umbilical hernias. So you must not forget to examine the abdomen when a child presents with you with bowel obstruction. So let's start with hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. What is HPS? HPS is a fibromuscular thickening of the pyloric muscle. So we don't really know what the etiology is apart from this. Many things are discussed, but we don't know exactly what the etiology is. And these patients present usually between three and six weeks of age. And can you tell us a little bit more about the clinical presentation? This is usually acute or more gradual onset of projectile non-bilious vomiting, which occurs shortly after feeding. In the classic scenario, these children are usually healthy. They don't have signs of sepsis or uh, signs of intracranial pressure or other reasons for uh, vomiting. They look healthy. Uh, but if the diagnosis is not made initially, then they might come in after a delay and then they might not look that healthy anymore. Are there signs on clinical examination of the abdomen that may give us a clue that uh, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis may be present? Sometimes they, you see peristaltic waves of the stomach in the upper abdomen and uh, you can sometimes also palpate the olive-shaped tumor in the right hypochondrium, that, but that's not so easy. In a crying child, to press hard on the abdomen is not easy. So usually the olive you can only palpate once the child is under anesthesia and well relaxed. And do you use special investigations to diagnose HPS? Yes, because vomiting is such a common symptom, symptom you need to, to make sure. Also, the clinical signs usually sus to uh, suggest uh, the diagnosis, you must uh, make sure. And uh, the best 
and easiest is a sonar if it's available. A sonar of the abdomen which shows a thickened pyloric muscle. And uh, usually the cutoff off is four millimeters. If the muscle is thicker than four millimeters, that's typical for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. If there is no sonar, you can do a barium contrast which shows an elongated and narrowed pyloric channel as well. And then uh, the blood results usually show the typical hypokalemic, hyponatremic uh, uh, alkalosis. Once you've made the diagnosis, how do you treat these patients? So, firstly, you have to do the emergency treatment because sometimes this child, these children are dehydrated, they have electrolyte, uh, electrolyte an, uh, abnormalities. So you have to rehydrate them. If they are very dehydrated, you use as usually ringer's lactate. And then uh, you also look at the electrolytes. You have to correct the potassium, the sodium, the chloride. And usually we use uh, 0.45% sodium chloride with dextrose and 20 to 30 millimoles of potassium chloride, which we put in the infusion as well. How do you calculate the initial volume of fluid that you give the baby for resuscitation? Probably around 20 mls per kilogram and you run that in as quickly as possible because it's a bolus which means you run it in as quickly as possible and then you reassess the child again, reassess the child again. if the fluid, if the urine Output is uh, one mole per kilogram and the pulse comes down and the blood pressure goes up, then you know the child is, is rehydrated well. And then comes the second phase where you have to, to uh, correct the electrolyte abnormalities. And uh, we usually do quite uh, a few blood gases and once the child normalizes, the alkalosis normalizes, then we consider a child ready for operations. Which surgical procedure is performed to correct a hypertrophic pyloric stenosis? Operation is a Ramstedt pyloral myotomy, which is very satis satisfactory because once you have done it, usually the patients do very well and recover already on the next day. So the Ramstedt pyloromyotomy is a longitudinal incision over the pylorus. And then once you have incised the, the outer layer of the bowel, the serosa, then you split the, the pyloric muscle until you reach the serosa, uh, the mucosa of the bowel. The nice thing about this operation is that you don't have to open the lumen of the bowel so there is no chance of leakage after the operation, which we surgeons are often afraid of. And then the feedings can be restarted after the operation about three to six hours afterwards. And uh, usually, as I said, the prognosis is excellent. I think let's move to intersusception. Um, what is intersusception? It's a condition where the proximal bowel moves into the distal bowel like an inverted sock. So it's always not so easy to explain to the, 
parents what that is. But nowadays you can, with help of the internet, you can show them pictures, which makes it much easier. So the proximal bowel is the intususeptum and the distal bowel is the intussusipiens, which receives the intussusceptum. Uh, intussusception can be ileocolic, which is very common. Ileoileal, which is rare, and colocolonic is again very rare. What we see quite often is that the intussusceptum might even protrude through the anus and mimicking a rectal prolapse. And uh, intussusception is very common, so we, this is something you will see definitely when you deal with children. What is the mechanism of intussusception? It's thought that a lead point is pulled into the lumen by peristalsis. And in the age group of five to nine months where the intussusception is most common, the lead point is usually caused by enlarged bowel lympho lymphoid tissue, the pious plaques following a viral infection. Uh, so that's the far, by far the most common reason for intussusception. Then there is an old, older age group, more than older than nine months old, which the lead point might be Meckel's diverticulum, polyps, even lymphoma, or worms or other foreign bodies. How do patients present that have an intussusception? Usually intussusception patients are well-fed fed babies who might have a history of recent upper respiratory tract infection or also gastroenteritis. They present with bloody slimy stool, which uh, is called red currant jelly stool, which is basically a mixture of mucus from the colon with blood from uh, the colon. Why is there blood in their stools? That is because of uh, ischemia of the bowel, because when you have an intussusception, the bowel becomes ischemic. And the most, uh, the early part of the bowel, which becomes ischemic, is the mucosa. So they produce a mixture of mucus and blood, which looks like a red currant jelly. So that's very typical. And then because of the intussusception causing bowel obstruction, they present with typical symptoms like vomiting and abdominal distension because this is always a distal obstruction. So they get abdominal distension as well. What are the clinical signs of intussusception? Often the children are dehydrated because they come in often after a few days. It's a delay, so they are dehydrated from the vomiting. The abdomen is soft and non-tender in uncomplicated intussusception. If there is a perforation, then that might be otherwise. They might have peritonitis. And then you can usually feel a sausage-shaped mass, which is palpable in the region of the colon. Do you need to use special investigations to diagnose intussusception? Usually the, the clinic is very suggestive because they present with this triad of uh, red current jelly stools, a mess in the abdomen and bowel obstruction. So that's very typical. So usually there is no problem with the diagnosis. But of course you should do biochemistry to see what electrolyte disturbances there are. 
You will see a high urea in case of dehydration and due to vomiting. Then uh, you should also do an abdominal x-ray. It will show you multiple air fluid le levels indicating low bowel obstruction. And you might even see a mass which uh, is in the region of the colon because of the intussusception. There will be no air in the distal colon because there is a complete obstruction proximal to that. There will be also, you must look for free air if because an intussusception can also perforate. What about an abdominal ultrasound? The sonar is usually very typical. It shows you a mess and it shows you that uh, multiple bowel layers because of the bowel in the bowel. That's typical for the target sign. If you cut the bowel with the sonar lengthwise, then you will see almost it looks like a kidney. So kidney sign as well. How do you treat a patient with intussusception? So we always try to avoid an operation because often we can be successful in this patient with uh, conservative management. First, we keep the, have to keep the child milk paros because we don't know if we have to operate this child. We put in a nasogastric tube because the child has uh, bowel obstruction. So we want to decompress the bowels. We give IV fluids again. We might have to give a ringer's lactate bolus again. And then we give maintenance fluids. And then once the child is stable and is uh, well uh, rehydrated, then we can try to do a pneumatic reduction. Do all intussusception patients go for a pneumatic reduction? There are some provisos for that. Child must be fully resuscitated and the abdomen must not be uh, an acute abdomen suggesting peritonitis due to, to perforation. So there must not be free air. So if a child is in any way not stable enough for a pneumatic reduction, we we'll rather go for an operation. How do we do a pneumatic reduction? A Foley's catheter, which is connected to a, a mercury manometer or a pressure gauge. You put that catheter into the rectum and then you, you blow up the balloon of the catheter and then you inject air. And once you inject air under pressure, then if you are lucky, and that's often about 70 to 80% of cases, you can reduce the intussusception back and you spare the child an operation. Can the intussusception recur once you've successfully reduced it? Yes, it can. In the books is often written a recurrence rate of 5%, but in my experience it's much less than that. And I think what can happen that you think you have reduced uh, into susception pneumatically, but you didn't. And I think I suspect that many of these books quote unsuccessful um, reductions, which are actually then counted as recurrence. So in my uh, experiences, the recurrence rate is very low. Of course, what can happen in, a, in about 20% that you have, uh, you are unsuccessful. And often it's in patients who come late. After a few days, the intussusception is already fixed. You can't reduce it. Or what also can happen that while trying to reduce it pneumatically, you get the perforation. 
this is not a, a calamity. You can, you have to prepare the patients for that. And if there is, uh, and you must tell the parents that if that occurs, if you perforate the colon, then the child will go to theater. How do you reduce an intussusception in theater? So we usually do a subcostal incision uh, over the intussusception where the mass is. Might be right subcostal or left subcostal, you open and uh, then you push the intussusception back. So it's usually doesn't react if you try to pull on the intussusception. You have to push and you push back. And if it's successful, uh, that's good. But often what happens, intussusception is fixed. And when you try to push it back, the bowel wall ruptures. If that happens, then you have to resect the part with the intussusception and do either a primary anastomosis, which is most of the time, or you might have to, to bring out stomas and then later reverse the stoma. After the operation, uh, these patients do usually quite well. What information do you give the parents after the surgery? You have to warn the patients that they might recur, come back with uh, adhesive obstruction, that, that is sometimes the case, that they come back with adhesive obstructions. What you read in the books is that they get vitamin B, B deficiency, when you have resected terminal ileum, which is, in our opinion, uh, findings not really the, a problem. So uh, we don't usually follow up for vitamin B, efficiency, but we say, tell the parents to come back if the child presents with vomiting and signs of bowel obstructions. Do you have any concluding comments around intussusception? Yeah, I think the most important cause of bowel obstruction after the neonatal period is intussusception. It's very common. It, it, it occurs in a typical age group of uh, between five months and one year. So you should not miss, miss an intussusception. Uh, some people can confuse it with a gastroenteritis, but when you think about the triad of abdominal mass, uh, red currant jelly, stools, and bowel obstruction, it is possible that children with intussusception present much later than in the common age class of 5 to 12 months. And if that happens, you must suspect the unusual cause of intussusception like a tumor, lymphoma, or Meckel's diverticulum, or another strange cause, worms, parasites causing this. So again, think about it, even outside of the typical age class, look for abdominal tumor, look for red currant jelly, and uh, if that is the case, you have to repair, uh, refer it. And we usually in this age class, because it's not the typical payer's block into susception, surgeon has to open the abdomen and look for the cause of this into susception. You don't want to miss a tumor or something else which, which you should, should resect in this age class. 
If you have a postnatal bowel obstruction, always look at the abdominal wall and look for hernias and previous operations, which might also be a cause of bowel obstruction in these children. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Muller. Pleasure. Thanks. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.